it wasn't really until I realized that my song, I'm not the only one singing that song. It's not just written about me, that, it, that it's about so many other people are suffering through this stuff. And so to know that you're not alone because your whole life has been spent or a great portion of your life has been spent alone thinking you're the only one, that's, that's the game of shame. It's like, oh my gosh, you are so bad, no one's ever going to love you. No one's ever going to be able to find anything good in you. So shame is a, is a dirty rat. It's a, it's a thief. Hey, what do you say, Recovery Nation? It's Full Potential Ted welcoming you to the Full Potential Addiction Podcast, where I chat with inspiring people in the recovery world. And if you're thinking of getting help for your addiction, now is the time. Definitely go to fullpotentialnow.org and get a list of the nearest treatment centers and therapists near you. And remember, it is never too late to make a new start. And of course, be sure, Recovery Nation, to go to fullpotentialnow.org to get your free recovery toolkit. This bad boy contains the tools to take on your addiction and definitely enhance your recovery. And now let's meet our featured guest, Fred Schumacher. Fred is a Wisconsinite and battled alcohol and drug addiction at a very, very early age. Despite it all, Fred was able to complete 13 years in the Army Reserve and served a tour in Desert Storm in 1991. Fred struggled with his addiction demons for years, dropping out of college on several occasions, facing divorce and the unknown. But through it all, he persevered. He not only completed college, but earned a master's degree in 2014. Fred has since now enjoyed several years of sobriety and carries a definite story of inspiration and hope. Fred is one of the most sincere, honest, and accountable guests I've ever interviewed. It is with great joy, honor, and gratitude I bring you this podcast interview with Fred. Are you ready, Fred, to rock Recovery Nation? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know if we can recapture the magic. Fred just laid it on me big time. This idea of love, value, value and purpose. And purpose. And those three things really kind of being the cornerstone to look at if you're entering in the recovery and I think in life in general. So I don't know right. if we can recapture this magic because we did not have it on record. A full potential Ted messed up. It's on me. <laughs> But I gotta love myself. I know, I know that we can. I know that we can recapture that because, again, you know, it was just, it stemmed out of you just asking one simple question, and that was, you know, what, what's your message? And for me in recovery, it's those two things. It's, it's honesty, you know, right in the beginning, right in the beginning of chapter five, how it works. We are, we're, we're hit with a truth that hit me right between the eyes when I first came to sobriety, and that is honesty. Rarely have we seen anyone fail who is willing to go, you know, to the to the levels of which we're willing to go to. Um, and that's one of the biggest things is honesty. And it's hard to be honest when you're living a life buried in shame. Uh, you, your lens, your capacity to be honest is, is just buried deep in a cesspool. You've Possibly from the, from the age of, of a child prior to the about the age of eight years old and younger, we really 
We are fed things in, into our very DNA that make us who we are. Uh, we haven't completely developed a, a worldview yet, but we certainly are, are learning to identify who we are. So we hear words like, you're stupid, you're worthless. For me, one of the big things that I remembered my entire life until I was 40. So here I am, 40 years old, and I'm sitting in seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, and I'm dealing with, with this thought. I'm working on my master's degree, and I'm working under this pretense that says that I'm stupid. And this is something that I carried with me my entire life. And so through some prayer, theophosic prayer, I watched God break that off. He showed me a large black oak tree. So it's like this vision dream kind of thing. And I wasn't sleeping, but it was certainly a very vivid dream. And I could see this enormous black oak tree. And a bolt of lightning came down and it smashed, split the tree in two. And I felt and I knew in my spirit and who I am that that was stupid and that I'm not stupid. So that lie that I picked up along when I was a child, that I'm stupid, that carried with me the entire time. So here I am trying to live a life filled with shame. And I can't do it because I can't see anything. I could feel it in my heart that I was a good person, but I could never get it through my mind, which drives my hands and my feet to do behaviors. Yeah. I could never get it. I could never get it from from out of my my mind that I was stupid. So my heart wanted nothing more than to be to be human, to be good. I knew there was a good person in here. But at 16 years old and you're facing five years in prison because you've screwed up again, uh, you've already been with 50 plus women at this age, trying to find that relationship that none of these things work. Uh, eight years old, starting to smoke marijuana, 12 years old, drinking and drugging. And you're just searching for something to remove that screen, that, that lens that you're looking through that says, I'm, I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm, I'm dirt. I'm nothing. And that, again, ties back to that three pieces, those three props. You know, I, I always think of a helicopter when I think yeah, about yeah. these things. And I think about, so, so we have three props, and when it's balanced, when you have all three, that thing will hum and sing. It'll, it'll, you know, yeah. it'll, it'll create lift. But when you take one of those off, you can't get the balance that you need because they're still in the position of the three. So you can have, you might be able to have one or two, if I'm hearing you right, but if you don't have all three, two might work a little bit, but it's not going to work very good. It's going to leave you hopping and, and wobbling all over the place. Like a helicopter. Right. Yeah, and you're, you and need the so, three to flow. Right, so you're always going to be seeking and searching for that for that piece in your life, that thing that, that helps you to fly. You hear people, well, when I get here, then I'm going to be... Nothing ever, you never get to here. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much success you have. When in your very DNA, you're the very core of who you are, feels that you are unlovable, feels that you have no value, and feels that you really have no purpose, any one of those three, you're always going to be seeking for that thing. You see, God created us to be filled with love, to know that we are loved, to know that we have value and that we have purpose. And it's so easy to see. For me, I was not a Christian. <laughs> 
I will. I was the farthest thing from a Christian. Yeah. Why don't we uh, go back a little bit in time and 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 take us through like your journey? Oh, absolutely. A little bit because I I think like. I've heard you speak before. You're a dynamic. You've had an incredible, really amazing life on a lot of levels. But twists and turns and diving down deep into the depths of darkness to be able to come up and rise up and and be where you're sitting here today. So I'm actually here with the dynamic Fred Schumacher, correct? Did I pronounce that correctly? You got it right. Um, So you're going to take us maybe a little bit through your story. Yeah, you know, I've... uh... I've been I've been in recovery for ten and a half years, and so I've had an opportunity to share my story, the very thing that I wanted to bury and hide, my entire life. The irony. Yes, and now because of sobriety, because of the Lord in my life, because of the program, I've been able to work through that and work out of that, and still climbing, still rising, but I'm not creating my own ceiling anymore. All oh, this. Can I chime in a little bit? Absolutely. Because I saw you speak first at the... What, Fox Hall. The Fox Hall speaker meeting for AANA, right? Yep. Um, and I was so moved. I was, I was sitting in the back row because one of the reasons why I went to that meeting, so everybody kind of knows out there in Recovery Nation that I'm a uh, substance abuse counselor and been doing that. I've sent a lot of people to AANA meetings and sampled a few open meetings, but I'd never gone to a speaker meeting. Mm-hmm. So, the, over the last probably six months or so, um, the vibe just came up with me. It's like, you know, I want to I wanna see people speak their truth. I'm looking for, I, I thought about starting this podcast. I'm like, I'm looking for stories of hope and change. I'm like, I want to, like when you're working in the treatment world, I mean, treatment is effective on some level, but mm-hmm. um, I've seen the ins and outs of it. I've seen the pluses and a lot of the minuses. And I think like connecting at a community level and just like um, feeling that support is so powerful. So as you were talking, my thought was I walked in that meeting. I wanted to see if I could walk in and not say a word. I walked in. There was a greeter. Hey, how? How's it going? All right. I walked over by the table, looked at the reading materials, then took a back seat. The very last row. Then I saw you come up and speak. But I did notice other people around me um, that were real nervous that were sitting in the same back row I was. And I kind of wondered. I don't know for sure what was going on for them. But I imagined myself, I was like, walking in this meeting would be like freaking terrifying. Mm-hmm. And then here, let alone this hidden truth within me, now I'm sitting in and all of a sudden I see you walk up. Okay, I'm a recovery alcoholic. You like totally own it. You own the room big time. You own yourself big time. And I'm like thinking like, just being able to get myself to that seat, be able to watch you, and then having that impact me. I mean, what a powerful experience. You know, you mentioned that, that feeling that you had. And now imagine, imagine uh, being that guy coming in for the first time who has lived a life full of shame, who has heard all these horror stories, uh, People have this stigma about AA, about recovery. AA is for quitters. And that somehow is a bad thing. So on one hand, they want to shame you for being an alcoholic, drug addict, drunk, sex addict. But then when you go to get help, they want to shame you because you're quitting. So our our lives in this world, they're not wrapped up to be 
to help us or to aid us in recovery, we take people who are down and we tend to crush them down. We stand on top of people's heads and their hearts and their dreams, their very lives of who they are, so that we can rise above them. Mm. And it just continuously creates this world of shame. So when we look at people and we say, well, AA, we have only a 15% recovery rate. It's because we don't change our, our playgrounds, we don't change our playmates and our friends. I remember very well when I got sober, yeah, take us people, story, people yeah. telling me, oh, you're such a quitter and how could you do that? So I have one, one group of people that are, that are sh- trying to shame me because I'm, I'm seeking something better for me. I had reached a point where I had attempted suicide. I was always, my entire life, I've always been the strong guy that's been there for everybody. But I was hiding something. So this, again, this uh, duality of, of me, that dual personality of who I am. So I'm, I'm one person in my heart and I'm one person in my head. And they don't necessarily, they would love to speak and they would love to help change one another. But they can't. It's not safe there. So I have friends who are telling me that I'm, I'm a loser and I'm a dirtbag because I'm an alcoholic, drug addict, sex addict. I'm this guy, but yet I live life so loud and, and proud that, that uh, I think people miss that in some ways. So I have the people that don't like that I'm getting sober and I have the people that don't like that I'm, that I'm not getting sober. So how do I please people? Mm. How do I recognize when I'm living my life in shame and fear for who I am? Like, even though you know that you're better, your behavior is something else. So this started when I was a little kid. When I was a little child, I was four years old when my stepdad came in. So I'm, I'm born to a, a mother and father who had been divorced for seven years. So they got together one night drinking and thought it'd be a great idea to try and get together. So repeated behaviors, repeated outcomes. So here comes me. So they're like, oh boy, now what do we do? Well, they stayed together and they had one more. Good thinking, right? (laughs) The beautiful thing is, is recovery has allowed me to see my mom for who she is and how she lost her childhood. So it's really helped me to deal with this because she married a guy who said he loved children. And so from the time I was four years old, I was abused physically and verbally, emotionally abused. When I was five or six years old, maybe seven years old, I was sexually abused by the boy next door. Uh, We were little kids, I remember, and I think about where my childhood went because I was a little kid and we would climb up on top of garages and we would draw boobs and vaginas with chalk on the shingles as just a little kid doing things that, that a little child shouldn't even know about. And here we are. We're doing this kind of behavior. Uh, my, my friend's mom is walking around nude and she's an artist. And so I'm seeing things that I shouldn't see and then to get molested. And I started smoking marijuana when I was eight years old. And so, it, wasn't, it wasn't an everyday use, but it was certainly enough to, to recognize that I enjoyed it. I liked it. I was one of the rare cases that actually got high on the first try. Mm. Uh, But then things, the abuse at home kept picking up. See, I love this. I mean, I I actually feel your pain. I mean, you talk about like, you know, we want everybody to, you know, start at the start line of the race, the race of life. Mm -hmm. You started like, like 500 yards back. Right. Having overcome these obstacles. 
but just laying out that's even this is all happens before you even take your your first hit off your first joint right and you lay it out and and looking back at this like event after event after event how and I think there's people out there that probably maybe don't relate totally to the whole story right. but I think there's probably bits and pieces of everybody in this story certainly you know along that time um, I was a rambunctious little boy. I was a hundred percent boy and just running, <laughs> you know, pretty typical, I think. So I did silly things. When my mom said don't, I did. Um, so I remember one time I took a fishing pole and I got into the water heater and I, there was a flame under there. So I lit the end of the fiberglass fishing pole with the 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 fire from the water heater and I had a fire and my mom caught me. <laughs> well, she's telling me how stupid that was. But what did I hear? I heard you're stupid. We had a mini bike with, it was a rolling chassis, so there's no motor in it. And I rolled it, I'm just a little guy. And I jumped on that thing and I rode down the driveway and down the street and I crashed into a brick wall and I ripped my hand and my arm up. And I remember my mom very clearly talking about how stupid that was. I told you not to do it. What did I hear? I heard again that you're stupid. So all these things led to me feeling stupid. Now, put on the, the physical abuse, getting beat for saying hi to your stepfather in the wrong tone of voice. It was the worst whooping I had ever gotten in my life because I said hi. And he said, don't you ever use that tone of voice with me again, ever. And he beat me all the way across the house, up the stairs, and threw me across the room. We lived in an old farmhouse and I landed on the windowsill on my kidneys and I had pain for years in my kidney. Oh, wow. And this was, this was normal. Yeah. So, so you see, is that, you, know, you don't even have to endure the physical abuse, but just the emotional. And how does a child receive these things? How does a child receive this is stupid? Unless parents are spending time with their children and explaining to them, behavioral modification or heart transformation. So we have a beating when a child's being an idiot, which is behavioral modification. We have a helping a child to understand why that's so dangerous. Heart transformation. So now I know that I can hurt my family. I know that I can hurt myself. And I know that, you know, I know that my behavior, although the behavior is stupid, I'm not stupid. We don't spend time helping children to differentiate. And so you have a child like me who went all the way up. You know, the greatest birthday present I had prior to the age of 16, well, it was on my 16th birthday. I got to beat my stepdad up because he tried to beat me. Wow. So that was the, the standing up point. That was... Yeah, that was, that was like this great big birthday present. I look back at, I look back at my childhood and I tried to assess what happened or where did I screw up? And I certainly have my places. I have my, I have my places. So, so I take this stupid thing and I take this abuse thing and now we go to school and I'm very smart. I'm not a stupid kid by any means. I can do basic math faster than most people can enter it into a calculator. So I enter into a school who doesn't have the funding to help work with a kid like me, who doesn't learn like the normal kid. And so, I'm constantly, that stupid is constantly being reinforced.
So if we don't know what to do with you, we shame you and we tell you that you're wrong and we tell you all these negative things rather than build you up or figure out how we can help you. So what hap- So what happens? So you're like hitting your first joint, you're eight years old. Eight years old. Kind of going through this rough, yep. really super rough beginning. Um, how do your like teenage years go and early 20s? Oh my gosh, teenagers, you know... Uh, People always ask me, well, how old were you when you did this? And how old were you when you <laughs> did I that? Just did. <laughs> I've done over five hits, 500 hits of LSD. I have snorted enough cocaine to load a deuce and a half truck, probably full. I've drank enough for 10 people. And even in my, even in my teenagers, hitting up acid during school, hitting up weed during school, snorting cocaine whenever possible, drinking whenever possible we would steal from cars and, and, and then pawn all the stuff off or trade it off for drugs. We took, we got a one gallon bag of mixed uh, prescription medications. No idea what any of them were, but we would hit that up with a bottle of Jack Daniels and some beers, some joints and eat pills. Well, what'd that one do to you? Oh, nothing. Well, let's try some more. And this is the way that things progressed. I was, I was 16 years old and I'm looking at that time in prison, and, and my uncle, my mom's brother, I, I ran away from a, a group home, and I ran to him. And, so you were in treatment. Yeah, I was, I was 16 years. Again, I say 16. 16 seems to be this year that must have lasted like three years <laughs> <laughs> because, because I can't put the numbers together. So 16 is my catch-all year, so excuse me. <laughs> but, but, you know, just... On a side note, I don't want to break your train of thought. No, too much, you're all good. But um, I work with zillions of 16 year old kids similar to you, showing up at like an alternative to aggression program, mm-hmm. bouncing out of foster homes, bouncing out of their regular homes, getting drug and aggression charges. And I just remember like some of my treatment experiences with them. And so you're almost like one of those kids that were some of the kids they felt like it didn't really. It didn't seem like you could get through to them or, or affect them on that level. They just weren't ready for it. Well, I think for me, yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a certified counselor. I'm a pastor. But for me, I think when you figure out which one of those legs is missing, which one of those props is missing, I think that you begin, you begin to find your way in and you begin to build. You see, because that heart thing would, would overcome the head thing. So I would, I would fight past all the negative things and I would pull myself up and pull myself out of the trouble that I was in but yet I didn't know how to live out in the sun Mm. I didn't know how to live with hope I didn't know how to live outside of somebody telling me I was a piece of dirt I had no clue how to do that and so I would fight my way out and I would get out and I would I would self-sabotage and I would put myself right back in how many times have you said to a kid or thought to yourself, how many times are you going to do this? Or, man, I so thought you, you had it. You were right here. You, yes, you yes, were, totally. You were right there. Yeah. Because we still haven't hit that piece in that child that they're looking for. You know, the best, the best thing, whatever it is, in the world. So, so you want to make somebody happy. You're married? Yes. So you want to make your wife happy? 
And so you go out and you buy her a brand new Maserati, this beautiful Maserati, and you drive it up into the into the driveway and Honey, it's because I love you that I bought you this $200,000 car. And she says, what the hell did you do that for? And you're looking at her like, well, what? Why would you not be happy with this? Well, it's not that I'm not happy with it, but what? You know I don't like a Maserati. You know that if you're going to give me a $200,000 car, make it a Ferrari or a Lambo. But we don't have the money for this. So you've given them this beautiful gift, but it's not the gift they're looking for. So oftentimes in recovery, we have a one, two, three, and out the door you go. And what happens when one, two, three don't fit the piece that the child's looking for? You see, because when I didn't know that I was loved, when I didn't know that I had value, and when I didn't have purpose, there's no sense in anything. Because the thing that I wanted, I wanted to be loved. I look back and some days still to this day, I'll sit down and I'll cry because I didn't have the love that I wanted. I was just a little boy and all I wanted was to be loved. You know, I put a drill through my hand accidentally one day. (laughs) Again, it was all boys. And uh, we put a hand drill in my hand, went through the wood. I was checking to see if it was, if it was coming through the board yet. (laughs) Smart, right? But it went through my hand. I never went to the doctor. I got a soda because that was good enough. You know, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. The pain's not that bad. Right. I was riding my bicycle and I bunny hopped a puddle and my rear tire hit the edge of the puddle that I was, that I was, and it wiped out. I wiped out in glass and I ripped all the skin off my knee like a big fold. And instead of like most parents would do, they would bandage you up. I got to walk down to the store and get bandages myself because I was being a stupid kid. I was told not to be doing that stuff. You know, so all these... What a powerful message to imprint on a little person. And it just reinforces that you're no good. So when you dig yourself out of the cesspool and you see the sunlight, you know that it's just a matter of time before somebody smacks you down. So I'm not going to let you take that away from me. I'm going to self-sabotage. I'm going to drive myself right back to where I'm comfortable because I'm comfortable in here fighting. I'm comfortable in here feeling like a piece of dirt or feeling less than human. Even though in my heart, I know that I'm so much more, but it's safe. It's safe when I'm fighting because you're not going to take me down anymore. I'm already down. Mm. So don't tell me all these things. it's so much easier to live in shame. It's so much easier to live without hope because you can't take it away. But the beauty is, is when I got sober and and I went to the program and I learned about being truthful, I realized that I wasn't the only one. I realized that I wasn't the only one hearing those stories and hearing those things. I wasn't the only one being told all those lies. And it helped, it encouraged me so much to know that I wasn't the only country song being sung. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can take my truck, take my dog. <laughs> Do your album song that you would, would like connect with that, that connects for you? Oh my country gosh. Song. I, <laughs> I don't know necessarily that I do. I, I love all music. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm the guy that always that's always singing. I love to sing. And, and that's another piece of shame with, uh, with eight siblings. 
uh, something that I loved to do was sing. And so we always, we always work to tear people down. We don't work to build people up. So my brothers and sisters are telling me, you should never sing in front of people. Mm, so another message, just anything that's really inherently inside you just sort of like gets shut down. Absolutely. And that message is just reiterated over and over again that even for our listeners out there, I mean, you probably can connect with this. I mean, I can connect with it on some level. I mean, obviously, Fred, this is your life. You're connecting right. with it. But it's this, like, idea of you're receiving the message so often that it actually almost becomes, like, you think it's, like, you, and it becomes a familiar way to do you. Yep. Absolutely. And then when you live that life for so many years, help me off, I'm off on this. You live that life for so many years and get the messages so many, so many, so many times. You really don't learn how to connect with your heart and understand, wow, I got these strengths. I'm actually gifted in these kinds of ways and I can have this kind of life. Right. That's just sort of like squashed down. And then almost the familiar, like, I'm a piece of dirt. You self-sabotage. Yeah. And you continue to have that familiar feeling. Mm-hmm. So take me down this path, if you could. So... Somebody's out there listening. Let's say they haven't gone to the first day meeting. Let's say they haven't gone to treatment. They just know that they've done it long enough. They know that familiar bad place they've been. But there's a spark of light, something in them, which inherently I believe is part of everybody. Everybody has like a success mechanism within them. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that people are good down deep. It's a matter of like helping them find that and sending them on their way is really kind of how I work with people. But the person's listening and they're thinking about changing. What would you say to them? You know, I... You, you were there, man. Absolutely. And it, again, it wasn't, it wasn't really until I realized that my song, I'm not the only one singing that song. It's not just written about me, that, it, that it's about so many other people are suffering through this stuff. And so to know that you're not alone because your whole life has been spent or a great portion of your life's been spent alone, thinking you're the only one, that's, that's the game of shame. It's like, oh my gosh, you are so bad. No one's ever going to love you. No one's ever going to be able to find anything good in you. So shame is a is a dirty rat. It's a it's a thief. You know the the word says that the enemy comes in to rob, steal, cheat, and destroy, and he does that. He's been he's been doing that to to innocent and amazing and wonderful people all along. You know why do you think gangs work so well? Negative reinforcements work so well. How many families do you have to be in to be beat into? There's, there's things. I mean, we're, we're all longing for those three things again. Yeah, the love, value. And- love, value, and purpose. And when, when the enemy comes in and he steals those things away from you, it becomes safer to be a pile of dirt. It's like once I, once I recognize that I'm a pile of dirt, you can no longer call me a pile of dirt because it doesn't bother me anymore. I've taken away your power. Mm. I'm just going to live below where I'm supposed to be. Even though I know that I'm supposed to be up higher, it's safer to live down lower. It's safer to be dirt than it is to get knocked in the dirt. Yeah, so I'm, 
kind of the images I, I'm getting off this Friday is just like, like it, it sort of like serves a purpose. Like you've been hurt long enough, hurt on a deep, deep, deep level long enough. You identify with this role, but if you're just the dirt, you don't have to endure another painful slam back into the ground. Exactly. And then, and help me out if I'm, because I might not be getting it, but I'm kind of thinking like, that's what would make like alcohol and drugs so like, so like appetizing. Because like, I could alter my mood on some level. So if I'm anesthetizing against the pain, mm -hmm. you know, past pain, and then if I'm just dirt when I get out and just stay dirt, it's almost like I, this, the, the image I'm getting is like, it's like this self, it's almost like you've been self, you're like in protected mode. Like your, your core light inside you, the part that's your gifts and who you are, has sort of just been like covered over like a rock. Absolutely. And I, I think of it a lot of times as very cyclical, um, at least while you're still fighting towards something or you think you still have some fight left in you. It's very cyclical because you're, you're, you're shamed by something that you've done that drives you into addiction or using or promiscuity, which brings up shame again, which brings up use again, which brings, so you're just, you're spinning around in this wheel that you just can't seem to get out of. You know, you try and fight, but then you self-sabotage and you, then you're shameful and then you use, and then you try and fight to get back out and then you get out and then you don't, you can't handle where you're at. So you self-sabotage or somebody shames you again and it just keeps going around and around and around and around and you can't ever get off the ride because nothing in the game ever changes. The view that you're looking through everything, nothing changes. And so at some point in time, you lose hope, you lose, you lose the ability to even dream that anything is better than what you have. And you are creating your, for yourself a ceiling that you will never, you'll never come up against it. You'll always smack your head into it and crank your neck and say, you know what, I'm just trash. At some point in time, you just say, you know what, I'm so sick and tired of fighting. I don't have any more fuel in the tank for the fight, so I'm just going to live here. Now I lower my expectations for who I am, even though it's against everything that I know in my heart I am. I'm going to let my mind control this thing, and it's going to take over, and it's going to darken the doors of my heart that once held any bit of hope. And, and everybody that I associate with, my running mates, my, my playmates, my playgrounds, are all geared to keep me down in this place. These are my people. This is what we do here. And never can I see past those walls. Why do you think welfare works so well to keep people down? Because it's just enough to keep you down. It's never enough. There's not a welfare check out there designed big enough to help somebody actually get up and out of where they are. So you take on and you live in the projects or you live in the trailer or you live in the wherever, the Roach Motel, you live in these places that this is all I will ever be. Nobody's ever going to see me for anything more because this is just who I am. So I smell funny and I look funny and I act funny, but I'm safe here. I don't like it, but I'm safe here. All of a sudden, one day it just flips. The script flips and you, you're just done. 
You're done trying. There's no more fight. Yeah, what's, what happened to you in midst of all this stuff? I mean, I'm totally getting it. Um, you know, pounded down on the ground numerous times. You're identifying with the dirt. But what happens to you? What, what, what is, your, is there a turning point or a series of turning points that happened to you? Maybe, I, I have no idea, so. You know, I, even though I was that dirt bag, remember the heart piece? Yeah. That heart piece that knew I was somebody better, I was the strong one for my friends. So when I had friends who would talk about suicide, I remember one person in particular, and I got in her car because she was going to run it into a tree. She was just done, and I said, let's go. And that's me. I'm the guy that was always there for everybody else. So despite everything that happened to you, in the midst of having endured all the abuse, being involved in all kinds of alcohol and drugs, that sort of like was always part of you the whole way through. Yeah. Just kind of like gift within that, you. For that, that loving, genuinely loving people, caring for people, has always been a part of my DNA. And I see it in so many people. Some of the scumbags that I knew and know are some of the kindest people. They always have that certain something. So people out there listening, I mean, this is like so, this is like a real value bomb. I mean, I, I kind of think about it like you're out there struggling, and if you can like connect with this part of what Fred's saying, I, I think it could be remarkable and transformational for you out there. Is if you can, you have that piece of you that you know has always been part of you. It's been a good piece. It's been a gift that you've always had. Um, to really begin to recognize that and bring that out more and more. And I think maybe even using those like, kind of like that triangle you kind of talk about, those three approaches of, all right, I, I am worthwhile. Maybe um, I don't have, I'm not the most you know, self-confident person in the world. Maybe I myself seems at like a zero, but hey, when I think about this gift, these gifts I have, maybe I go up to a one or two. Yeah. Then maybe I can take a look at who could I let my life to get more love that's going to be healthy love? Right. You know, there's a, there's a, a story that I just love, and it's about a little boy walking on a beach, and he sees thousands of starfish washed up on the beach. And he looks at it, and he scratches his head, and he walks up to one starfish, and he picks it up, and he throws it out into the ocean. And he looks down, and he picks up another one, and he throws it out into the ocean. And this older man walks up to him and he says, son, look at all of these. He's like, what difference can you make? You're not going to save them all. And the little boy looked at the old man and he looked down at the ground and he picked one up and he said, I'm going to save this one. And he threw it back out into the ocean. And if our whole lives are spent to help or to save or to bless one isn't that enough? We think that, you know, it's like, yeah, we want to change the world, but if we could change, if we could help, if we could bring one person out, does that not bring, can we not see the value? And, and every person that we help, every person, every person that we help is another, is another, another deposit into our emotional bank of strength so that I'm a little stronger and I can see that, you know what? Maybe there's something decent. Maybe that something in me can actually be valued. And 
here's a glimpse into next week's podcast episode. What did? What, what, what within you made you commit to it? I, uh, I remember I ran away to Montana after the suicide attempt and after God told me I'd be a pastor. I went out there for two years and I came back. I was going to finish up my plumbing apprenticeship. Couldn't get a job. I retook my test. I passed, but I couldn't get a job. And then we did a, we did a fundraiser for a young man, 27 years old, dying of brain cancer. His wife is absolutely beautiful. So I took it upon myself to hit on her. I grabbed the microphone from the DJ and in front of all his family, in front of him, in front of my friends, and I hit on this woman. And I drove home and I don't remember driving home and I got up the next day and I just remember getting on my knees, knowing something bad was happening. I said, God, you gotta help me. I can't live my life like this anymore.